So we're going to continue our study on the Bible with the New Testament. So we have four lessons on the New Testament. Tonight we're going to do the Gospels. We're just going to focus on Luke because it would be hard enough. It's hard enough to do just Luke. It would be impossible to do all four. And they all tell, obviously, the same basic story. They're very different. But Luke's is probably my favorite for whatever that's worth. And there's also Bible Project videos on Luke, so Luke wins. Um, so I want to start with a little bit of trivia, see how much you know about Luke. And don't feel bad if you don't know any of these answers, but we're going to see how we do. Uh, how many chapters are there in Luke? Does anyone know? This Ryan got it, 24. He's like, 24? And he eats Chick-fil-A sandwiches. If it said Chick-fil-A chicken tenders, I would have been all over that. Or strips. Oh, I'm sorry, I called them tenders. Yeah, I don't know things, apparently. And I eat chicken lay sandwiches. All right, spicy. Um, which which gospel has the most chapters? Ryan said Matthew again, and he got it correct again. <laughs> yeah, killing you, Ryan. Ryan, why don't you just take a break for the next 40 or 50 seconds? I'm kidding. Yeah, Matthew has 28. Uh, which gospel has the fewest chapters? Mark. Mark is right, 16. Which is the longest gospel by words? It's Luke. Luke has 19,000 words. Matthew has about 18,000. Who does Luke say was the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth? I should have given you the mug after the trivia. Um, And then to whom... Yeah, this is great. To to whom uh, does Luke address both Luke and Acts 2? So Ryan's going to teach this lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a Harding. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's totally fair. All right. Y'all had to go to chapel at once a month. But we made it. But you made the incident. But yes. Yes. I was right behind you on that. You win some, you lose some. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When you become... When you become D1, all that silly <laughs> biblical stuff goes out the window. Sorry, God, I, I yeah. don't know who Luke's to, but yeah. that NIT tournament. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that, God? Um, all right, well, there was some trivia about Luke for you. Um, all right, so we'll talk a little bit about Luke himself. I'm always interested in you know the characters behind the stories and got to research Luke, and it was pretty interesting. Some old paintings of Luke. He looks completely different in both of those images. So it looks like uh, Professor Quirrell on the left. You know who that is. So he's got something under that turban. Um, so Luke was a friend and disciple of Paul. I put the verses there, but in Colossians, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, that's Paul speaking, Philemon, Luke, my fellow worker. Second Timothy, only Luke is with me. So obviously a real close friend of Paul's. Uh, he was a Greek physician, so obviously in a medical and dental uh, you know, group, this is relevant. And uh, he lived in the Greek city of Antioch. That's your blank. If you know anything about the early church, Antioch was a really big city in the early church. And that's in uh, Turkey, which was ancient Syria. So if you wonder why we think Luke was Greek, well, it pretty much says it in Colossians 4. And I'm just going to read it real quickly. Uh, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus uh, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, 
and they have proved a comfort to me. And then he goes on to say, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. So it would seem that he's intentionally listed out the ones who were Jews and then left it to be obvious that he's not Jewish, that being Luke. And so uh, this would make Luke the only non-Jewish writer of the New Testament, which I think is interesting. Um, the other option is he could be a Hellenized Jew, which means he doesn't observe the Jewish customs and things like that. But let's just go on the idea, and I think most people do, that he's Greek, which is of note and is of interest. Uh, other names for Luke. He was Luke the Evangelist or St. Luke. You'll hear that. He wrote, again, Luke and Acts. And if you think about that, who do you think wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else? What's your initial thought to that? Yeah. It was a very leading question, but yes, Paul. I think anybody would think that. In fact, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. He wrote uh, over one quarter of the New Testament, and so he wrote more than even Paul in terms of words, which I think is something we don't think about. So huge contributions there. Uh, we believe that he was a martyr. Apparently he was hung from an olive tree. He was uh, also, tradition says that he was an artist. Now some of this is like Catholic tradition. And so, some, I mean, I, I, I tend to just kind of go along and think it, you know, it's kind of interesting to think of. He was an artist, and so you'll see him in paintings like holding a palette or like a, like a pen, or he'll be holding like in this image, this little painting he did of Mother Mary. That's probably, that's not biblical, okay, but that's, <laughs> that's what the painting is, okay? So he was an artist. And as it is in, in Catholicism, like you have certain patron saints of certain things. And so Luke's got it locked down. He's the patron saint of artists, as we alluded to physicians, surgeons, if you go into surgery, there you go, bachelors, we don't have any bachelors, um, butchers, and students. So if you are a single medical student, he'd be your patron saint three times. Um, so there you go. Um, who is his audience? This is your blank, the Greeks slash Gentiles, which is a unique audience. And I would say also it's written to a general audience. I don't think it's just for Greeks are for Gentiles, but as we sit here as non-Jews, we're sort of the audience, in a way, that was intended. Um, and you can contrast this with the Gospel of Matthew, for example, which is clearly written to a Jewish audience. All right, so we look a little bit at, oh, and I've left out my little notes about this. This is how each writer of a Gospel is depicted differently. And I, honestly, I'll have to jump up to see like, what, because I left it out. All right, so you see St. Matthew, he's depicted as a divine man. So there you go. St. Mark, a winged lion. St. Luke, a winged ox. And St. John, a rising eagle. So if you're like into like old art, if you're ever in an art museum, they'll always have them with like their little thing. The one that always like makes me laugh is uh, the guy that was like grilled. Like that was the way he was killed. And so he's like holding his like grill, <laughs> which you think he'd like want to be distanced from the grill. Um, and then there's the one that was like shot with arrows. He's always got arrows in him and stuff like that. But uh, you'll see when they depict uh, you know, the, the authors of the Gospels, they'll have them with these sort of things. Um, now, I'm not like a uh, you know, big historian in terms of how you know, the, the Gospels came about. And we've been recently talking about this, how you, know, you either believe the Gospels are inspired and authoritative, or to some degree you don't. Uh, we've had kind of an ongoing conversation about are the Gospels inerrant, and we won't get into that tonight. Um, but it's pretty clear that the way that you compare the Gospels, there are different witnesses or different sources you could say that they used. Some of those are shared sources, some of those are not shared. And so you can kind of look and see it. You know, each Gospel, we think that Mark was probably written the earliest, 
John was written the latest. Do you agree with that, David? All right, and so you can kind of base that on, you know, what do they contain in them and what do they borrow from each other and things like that. So obviously, like, Peter was a witness and played a big part in, in some of these Gospels. And so kind of interesting. This will, there will be no test over this. Um, but as we said earlier, Luke is the longest. It combines stories found in the Gospel of Mark and parts from what they call a Q source, which is found in both Matthew and Luke, and then the L source, which is found only in Luke. So there you go. Um, and Luke was most likely written uh, around 80 to 110 A.D. So that makes it within you know, the lifetime of Jesus and the people who would have known Jesus. Not within the lifetime of Jesus, but people who would have known him. Okay, so we're going to do five parts of Luke, split it up that way. We'll have some videos, and then uh, we'll just discuss some of it. And we'll try and, we'll try and move through it because it's a lot. So Luke 1 through 2 is introduction. 3 through 9 is Jesus and his mission. 9 through 19 is the journey to Jerusalem. And then, uh, that should say 18. 19 through 23 is the Passion Week, which you're probably aware, but we are sitting in the Passion Week right now. So last night was Palm Sunday. Uh, does anyone know what Monday is called? I don't believe there's a name for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't think there's a name for it. Eh, nothing really happened. Um, I think there's like a Madri Tuesday or something like that. And of course, then we get into what are the, what are the, there's like names for like all these days. Palm Sunday was yesterday. We'll leave it at that. Uh, and that's Fashion Week. And then Luke 24, uh, Jesus is risen. And uh, so we'll start here with uh, the introduction. And so this is uh, Da Vinci's Annunciation. So from an art standpoint, the Annunciation is like a really common like artistic uh, you know, thing. And so this is uh, Da Vinci's and details really good. And in the background, it's like super detailed, but I think that's somewhere in Florence. Um, okay, so with uh, the opening of Luke, there's actually two Annunciations. And so uh, there's two sets of parents who are visited by angels and they announce the divine promise of a son. All right, so the first one is in Jerusalem with Zechariah, that's your blank, who was an elderly priest and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, what's interesting is they're both very old and they don't have children. Does that remind you of anything from the Old Testament? You got it, you see, he's catching up on you. Yeah, so it's intentionally supposed to remind you of that story. Okay, we'll see a lot of that in the New Testament. I think. Things that maybe we miss, even though we know these stories, we don't see the parallels quite as much as maybe other people would have seen it at that time. And maybe they would have missed it too, but Abraham and Sarah, for sure. So just as God miraculously chose to give Abraham and Sarah a son, Luke is implying that God is about to do the same thing for his people again. So I think that's pretty beautiful. Uh, next, in Nazareth, and we know this one for sure. What's going on? Oh, bummer. Um, we have a young, unmarried... Uh, Joseph, and then an angel visits Mary and tells her to name her baby Jesus. Does anyone know what Jesus means? That's your next blank. David wants to answer so bad. Can he? So it's a, like he will save his people. Yeah, the Lord saves, which I'm sure that could be like variations on that, but the Lord saves, which is cool. So that's why the name Jesus. Um, Mary's first question, though, to that is, is a natural one. I think Luke 1, 34, it says, How will this be since I am a virgin? Which I think begs this question when we talk about the birth of Jesus and this, this narrative. This is not really in your notes. But why a virgin birth? I think that's a good question. It's a question I've kind of had, like, well, did it have to be a virgin birth? Um, and so here's a few things. Um, I would say the first thing is, is that this is Luke who's writing this, who's a physician, and he's writing about the virgin birth. 
And actually, the Bible's most extensive account about Mary was written by Luke. Okay, so he focused a lot on that. So he would have known intimately that a virgin birth was not possible physically, anything short of a divine thing. Okay, so I think that's important. Impossible apart from God. Uh, Jesus was not just an ordinary man or even a great man. I think the fact that it was a virgin birth plays into that. Um, and Jesus was divine and sent miraculously by God. Okay. Um, it also fulfills an ancient prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it kind of needed to happen. There's over 100 prophecies. We talked about that you know, a couple months ago. And this is one of those prophecies. I think this is also cool is that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis 1 generated life inside Mary's womb. Through the conception and birth of the Messiah, God bound himself to humanity. So I think that's pretty cool. So it shouldn't be an embarrassing thing that there's a virgin birth. And I think there's a kind of a questioning of that, among other things, of, well, it probably wasn't actually a virgin birth. But you start doing that sort of stuff, and you're really taking away you know, prophecies that were fulfilled. You take away a lot of the deep theology of these events. And uh, you know, I think we do that to our peril. All right, so what you see then is both parents uh, sing songs of celebration. And these songs echo sentiments that are found in the Old Testament and the prophets. So a lot of these things that we've already kind of studied through. And it's this idea that God is going to fulfill his promises. And that's what their songs kind of focus on, which is kind of beautiful because it, it mirrors the story, you know, with Zechariah of Abraham and Sarah. And then they're singing songs that kind of evoke images from the Old Testament. We'll see that a few more times in, in Luke. Um, so John the Baptist is the prophetic messenger that's promised in the Torah and in the prophets. He prepares Israel to meet their God. And then Jesus is the messianic king who is promised to David, who brings God's reign and blessing, just as he promised Abraham. So that's kind of cool. All right, then Mary and Joseph, they travel to Bethlehem. You probably know that. It's in a few songs. And they deliver Jesus in a manger. We know that. And then, of course, the shepherds, they follow a star and they find and worship the baby Jesus. We, I, I definitely know that story. The Luke 2, my mom always reads it at Christmas. Okay, so she always pulls it out and she reads from Luke. So that's the story she goes with. Um, the main point I think is this, is that you know, just two chapters into Luke, I think my question is, is this the way that anyone would have expected the Messiah to come to earth? So you're born of, into scandal of an unmarried uh, woman in a manger you know, next to animals. I mean, it's just not, not at all what you would expect, okay? And so I think that the point that's being made very early on is that God sends his son to turn the current world order upside down. And I don't mean politically. I'm just, just it, it, it subverts every expectation that you might would have, okay? All right, so that is part one. This is part two. Look at that incredible painting. A lot going on there. This is Jesus' baptism, so that'll be in this section. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start uh, with this video, and the volume won't work at first. And then we will um, talk a little bit about part two. Come on, buddy. The Gospel according to Luke began by telling us about the births of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And in the next section of the Gospel, Luke zooms forward in time. So John is now a prophet, and he's leading a... All right, so let's talk a little bit more about three through nine real quickly. And there's another baptism painting. 
I don't know if you'll care about these details, but this is, uh, I think, Verrocchio, and this is uh, one of Da Vinci's first things, like as a teenager. I think he painted, I can't point at this, but I think he painted like that little face on the bottom left. Okay. All right, so um, genealogy. Uh, if you ever have looked at the genealogies of Matthew and Luke in detail, which let's be honest, probably a lot of us haven't. We probably just kind of like glazed over them a little bit. And uh, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that per se. I mean, it's, it's pretty dense stuff. But if you look at it closely, you'll notice that their genealogies are different, which is sort of like your you know, freshman in college atheist, like, aha, like these are different. This is wrong. You know, this is an error. Um, there's a couple different theories for why they're different in it, but the, the predominant one is, is that Luke uh, follows Jesus' lineage through the line of Mary, while Matthew follows the lineage through Joseph. Okay, that's the thought. And you can say in general that like Luke tends to focus on females more. Uh, there's even a, a theory that I reject, of course, that Luke is a female. You know, that whoever wrote it was female. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think he just happens to focus on females more. But you see that. He focuses more on Mary. He focuses uh, even on her lineage, we'd say. And there's other ways that, to read that. But either way, both lineages um, make Jesus a descendant of David, which makes him eligible to be, to be the Messiah. Okay? And so if you're ever confused by those being different, just think about one follows the Father, which as a Jewish text would make a lot more sense. And then Luke's follows uh, Mary. All right. The main purpose of the genealogies, though, is to connect Jesus through three main Old Testament characters. Both genealogies do that. The first is David, and this lines up Jesus as the Messianic king. The second is Abraham, which is to suggest that Jesus will bring God's blessing. And then the last is Adam, which is to say that Jesus brings this blessing to all humanity. All right, so pretty cool. Uh, as the video did a great job of explaining, is Jesus' mission, in one sense, was to, to free the poor. Um, now, this is not like it's a social justice gospel. I think you could kind of like take that a little too far and be like, well, that's our mission too, is to help the poor. But I think the greater point is, is that the poor is not just someone that doesn't have money. The poor is really anybody that's, that's poor. And I think when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I think what they're getting at is, is that anyone who's lacking in anything. So people of low social status, financially poor, people who are outsiders, sick, blind, women, children, Samaritans, tax collectors, Gentiles, that's the poor that Jesus is coming to free. Um, and you could even say people who are trapped in sin. I mean, Jesus is coming to free those. And in that way, really, we're all poor, okay? Um, and the sense is that also we, we're never going to be able to be rich eternally without Christ coming to, to change things, okay? And I think it's also to contrast against who are seen as rich at that moment in time, whether that was by wealth or by power. So the people that Jesus has the most beef with are like the Pharisees and the teachers, and those are the rich people. They're the ones that have the status, that have the money, that have the power. And Jesus was coming to not preach to them, but to preach to everyone else, basically. Um, so let's move on to part three. All right, so part three, this is the journey to Jerusalem. So several chapters here. Um, in this section, Jesus goes out with his disciples on a long road trip to Jerusalem. And at the end of this road trip, they're going to join thousands of Israelites to celebrate the ancient feast of Passover. And so, like a lot of these things, what's, what's this road trip supposed to remind you of? Something from the Old Testament. It's supposed to remind you of Israel's long road trip, the one that we looked at from Exodus, the Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all that. I mean, those, that's, that's what it's supposed to mirror in a way. 
Um, and so it's supposed to remind you of that. And so with Moses, they traveled from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, and then later King David established Jerusalem as their capital. So you have this journey that culminates in Jerusalem, and in the same way, Jesus is going to take this journey with his disciples that culminates in Jerusalem, the same place. And you could even say that David set up a temple, Jesus is going to set up a new temple. I mean, it's, it's really kind of makes your, uh, you get like goosebumps thinking about how these things line up, you know, and that it was all intentional, and it's, it's really beautiful. Um, so in this way, Luke is portraying Jesus as the new Moses and also the new David. So the new Moses and that he's going to, you know, guide his people to the promised land, and the new David, he's going to establish a new temple. Okay, so as the new Moses, he's going to renew Israel's covenant with God, and then as the new David, he's going to gather the people together to live under his rule. All right, and in this section, there's a lot of teachings and a lot of parables, which are some of the best parts of the Gospels. I love the stories, and we've heard a lot of them, seen a lot of them acted out and things like that. Um, the main idea, though, is that Jesus is going to change the way we think about money, how we resolve conflict, and how we treat the poor. Those are some kind of common themes. Um, and there's this continued focus again on the good news for the poor. And naturally this, of course, upsets the religious leaders. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a theme that will kind of go on is that Jesus almost intentionally upsets the leaders. And it seems like, why are you doing that? But obviously there's a point. It's kind of what needed to happen. Now the most famous uh, probably of all parables, or at least top two or three, would be the prodigal son. I think we know the story of the prodigal son. I think in that story, the older brother represents the Jews and the religious leaders. And um, Jesus wants religious leaders to see the outsiders the way that God sees them, as sons and daughters who are being re reclaimed from death. Um, and also that Jesus' kingdom is wide open to anybody. Um, and I think the requirement to enter into, into Jesus' kingdom, into God's kingdom, is to humble yourself. And I think that was... The, the issue with the Pharisees. They weren't willing to humble themselves or to accept that they needed something to fix them. And so we need God's mercy. Uh, and I think that if you're too elevated and you're too wealthy in your mind or in, in position, you could say, it's hard to feel like you need anything. I think that's why you hear like, you know, the verse about it's, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than, you know, uh, from, what is it? A camel to go to the eye of a needle, you know. Um, I think the truth in that is, is sort of this point, is, is that you have to be willing to humble yourself and to, to desire mercy. And if you have everything, then it's hard to, to want those things. All right, so by the end of all this, this is the end of chapter 18, what I have is the plot thickens. Jesus is, is coming up on Jerusalem, and the religious leaders, because of all these stories, because of all these things he's doing, they're starting to plot his murder. Okay, which gets us to this section. This is the Passion Week. So again, last night was Palm Sunday, so it's kind of cool. Um, every year I'm always kind of reminded of it. We usually do a concert on Palm Sunday, and so it's obviously like definitely on my mind. But it's really cool to think of that happening a couple thousand years ago and that we're still celebrating, still, still aware of it. Um, so we have, of course, uh, the triumphal entry, which is the first part of that. And uh, Israel's ancient prophets, they promised that one day God himself would arrive and rescue his people and rule the world. Other times the prophets spoke about a coming king who would ride into Jerusalem to bring justice and peace. And so as Jesus rides in on this donkey, he's activating these hopes. And I guess I'd like to think that people in Jerusalem had kind of heard of Jesus, that they were maybe anticipating, that they'd heard he was coming, and they knew these prophecies. And as they saw him riding in, maybe they were hoping that he would or he would arrive in that way. But then actually seeing it, I can only imagine how excited they would have been. 
and that certainly they're they're cheering Hosanna and they're 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 buying into this like completely. Now you contrast that with imagining what the religious leaders that don't want this, what they're thinking. Um, they don't want it because if this is Jesus, this is the new Messiah who's coming to take on a new throne, that's how they're thinking of it. They may not be a part of that and they may lose their power and their position. Um, so you've got a group of people super excited, you've got a group of people really not excited. And I think what's interesting is you think about Jesus, and when I think about the triumphal entry, I just assume he's like excited, right? That's how I see him, like kind of smiling and waving, like signing an, an autograph. I don't know what they would sign on some papyrus. Um, what's interesting is that Jesus is actually weeping as he rides into town. Um, and I don't think I knew that. Uh, at least it doesn't register with me. So I guess the question is, why does Jesus weep? Like, why do you think he's weeping? He knows what's coming up. Yeah, sure. It's not a super hard question. Yeah. Yeah, I think he knows what's coming. I think he's starting to get a sense of it. We're talking about this in class yesterday. I mean, there's obvious, like, in the incarnation, Jesus is not fully aware of what's happening. And you see this in the way that he kind of wrestles with God or wrestles with what's coming. And and I don't, you know, I'm not in a place to explain exactly how that works. But I, I think there's a sense of he knows what his mission is, and yet he doesn't necessarily want to do it. And maybe it's almost as these things are happening, he kind of, like, realizes it, like, as it's happening a little bit. Maybe he's fully aware, but I mean, you see that as he's praying, like right before he's crucified, like he's still like kind of hoping it wouldn't have to be this way. I think he kind of knows. So it's one of these things like, really don't want to have to do this. It's like before a tough day, you're like, man, I really don't have to take this test, but I know what's happening, <laughs> you know. God, please cancel this test, you know. Um, let this cut pass. Um, I think he's also probably weeping because he knows he's not going to be accepted as Israel's king. And I think he also knows, I think he's weeping, and what it says is he's weeping over Israel. He knows that Israel's not going to get it right. And so we started this section or this book with this idea of you know, the baptism and the renewal of Israel and that God's about to do something new and we need to get kind of on board with that. We need to cross through the Jordan again and start this journey fresh. And he knows that this is not going to happen. He knows that they're going to turn on him. They're going to do the wrong thing. Um, and so this makes him angry as it does make him upset. So then... Angry, weeping, upset Jesus, what does he go do next? Well, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. Okay? And this is not lamb petter Jesus. This is like angry, indignant Jesus. Uh, so he marches into the temple courts, he drives out the money changers, he turns over tables, and he begins critiquing the religious leaders. We talked about this when we were back in the prophets, but he also quotes Jeremiah, who once stood in the same spot of the temple courtyard to offer the same critique of Israel's leaders. Do you remember that when we are talking about the Old Testament? Maybe. I think we actually talked about it in that Gospel and the Prophets lesson, David. And in Luke 19, he says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And that's from Jeremiah. So that's really cool, I think. So what is that, 700 years before-ish? you got Jeremiah prophesying to Israelites, saying that they ruined the temple, and now you got Jesus doing the same thing, dealing with the same kind of people. Okay? And so, also, Jesus is intentionally provoking the leaders. And if, that's, if there's one way to do it, it's to go and mess up the temple and start, was he, did he have a whip or something? Isn't that in one of the accounts? You know, I mean, it's pretty crazy stuff. So, just think, if someone came into your church on Sunday morning and started whipping and turning tables over, well, I mean, we'd be calling security, we'd be calling the police, you know? So, you can only imagine how people acted uh, and how they reacted to that. All right, then we have the Last Supper. This is all, this is like... 
it's like season six of your favorite shows where everything starts wrapping up it's all good stuff okay so uh, Jesus is doing Passover with his disciples and so he takes the symbols of bread and wine from Exodus and he makes them about a new Exodus all right so a lot of this is takes old symbols and makes it new and so Jesus's broken body and blood will liberate and free Jesus's new Israel then we have Jesus in the garden. We have Jesus on trial. So, you know, he goes and prays in the garden. Um, I, I love the part about his disciples keep falling asleep. It's so funny to me. It's like their last, last moments with Jesus, and they can't stay awake. It's kind of funny. Um, he's then arrested. We know that story. He's dragged before Pilate. Pilate, at least in our, you know, the way that we understand it, thought that Jesus was innocent, but he goes along with it anyway. And he tries to, uh, actually they vote for, for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. This is important because with this, this is your blank, the innocent is handed over in place of the guilty. So with Barabbas being released instead of Jesus, the innocent is handed over in place of the guilty. I think that theme is pretty obvious, what's being said with that. And I think the funny thing about that is, is that we, we think of Barabbas about as bad as it could get. You know, like he's a murderer, like I don't know what else he did, like he incited riots or something. I can't remember exact details, but like a bad dude. Grant did the Lord's Supper. You weren't in late service, but he did, it was really good. He was like really loud and it was good. Um, <laughs> but it's easy for us to draw a line and say that, you know, I, yes, I sin and I make mistakes, but I'm still a pretty good guy, right? We all do that. We look at someone like Barabbas and we're like, well, but, I mean, this guy, look at what this guy's done, you know? And I think the beauty of this is that, like, we're just as bad as Barabbas. And we also have get, received the same gift that Barabbas got. Barabbas did not deserve to be released. And they, he was only released because of religious leaders kind of making sure he got released. But it's this image of this, like, t terrible guy just, like, running off, like, woohoo! Like, he, like, runs off to probably, like, do more crime is one that just has never really sat well with me. And it's almost, like, kind of humorous. Like that they would murder an innocent man to let this guy go. It's just kind of crazy. Um, but I think the same is true of ourselves when we try and act like we aren't sinful, you know, in a way. So, um, and then Jesus on the cross. Obviously a lot more details we could do. I think you know that story. Um, I think it's important to note that while Jesus suffered, he remained merciful and loving. Eric's sermon yesterday was on this and on the shame of the cross and how it was the most shameful, you could say, execution maybe ever devised. Which, you know, it's so Jesus not only took on our sin, but he also took on our shame, which I think is, a, is an interesting uh, way to think about it. Um, he prayed over the Roman soldiers who were crucifying him, and he even told one of the criminals next to him that he would see him in paradise. And then as he dies, he quotes Psalm 31. These are the words of King David Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So that's cool. So that wasn't an original Jesus quote, that was from David, which is neat. I just think the intentionality of all of it, I know this is like really dense stuff, we could like sit and talk forever, but just the intentionality with which this all plays out, to me is just beautiful. It's kind of like any great work of literature, and we're not saying that this is a work of literature in that sense, but like when the things like line up and what was foreshadowed several books or chapters below, when that lines up, it's just sort of like, ooh, that's good. You know, you kind of get that. And I feel like the whole gospel is just like that, one thing after another after another. And there's so many layers that you find even just now. Like the thing about in Deuteronomy about the curse and they had the snakes that were attacking people because they didn't follow and so they put this bronze snake up on a piece of wood and it, it took that curse upon itself and you see that in the cross and that, that's why that was there in Deuteronomy, you know, like 1,500 years ago or something. So it's pretty wild. Um, all right, so we have another video. We're going to watch it. 
And at the end, we may have a little bit of time to just sort of talk about thoughts on all this. Okay. I love those videos. They're great. I say it every time we show them. They're so good. Those, those in particular. All right. So Da Vinci did not paint this. Um, all right, so uh, we'll look at really quickly this this road to Emmaus, uh, which is a really interesting and sort of odd story. Seems like almost like a like an epilogue or something. It seems like almost like disconnected a little bit, but I think there's something really beautiful in that that I wasn't aware of uh, until I read it preparing for this. But what you see in this, there's a symmetry at the beginning of history. We think about Adam, we think about Eve in Genesis three. There are two people, Adam and Eve who ate food offered to them by Satan. That's your blank. Their eyes were opened, and the whole human race was plunged into sin and death. Okay? That was the beginning of history. At the climax of history, which is Jesus' resurrection, two people, these two random you know, followers, they ate food offered to them by Christ. Their eyes were opened, and they saw who Christ was, and the new age that was beginning in him, a new age where sin and death no longer rule. It was pretty cool. Um, I don't know if that's exactly what that story is saying, but I think that's a really cool way of looking at it. That it's, um, you know, just again, parallels some of these old stories and represents kind of the new age and the new change of things. All right, so let's look at, uh, and it kind of reminds me of this. This is from the show Lost, if you've ever seen Lost. If you haven't seen Lost, this ruins the show for you. Um, but there's a symmetry in how the show opens and how it ends. Uh, it opens with an eye opening and it ends with an eye closing. In case you missed it, there you go. So symmetrical shots, and it kind of feels like that a little bit to me. Okay, uh, there's other examples of that, I'm sure. All right, so here are uh, the main ideas in Luke. There are three of them. The first is the good news to the poor, which we talked about a few times in Luke 4:18 through 19. I think it summarizes it well. This is actually uh, quoting Isaiah 61. This is Jesus uh, in his words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke 19, more succinctly, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Okay, so we've said this already, but Christ did not come for the clean and the religious, the upright and the educated. He came for those who know themselves to be lost. And throughout Luke, we see Jesus welcoming outsiders into the blessings of grace, while those who appear to be insiders are shut out. So I take it as a bit of a warning in some, in some ways. If, if I ever feel like too much of an insider, or too comfortable, or too uh, much in power, it, it makes me a little nervous. Because I think that goes against really the core of Christ's mission. So I, and I think if we're only ever concerned with being around people who are powerful and who are wealthy and who are insiders, it really works differently than how Jesus' mission was. And I'm not making that as like an absolute statement that you know you only spread the gospel to people who are below the poverty line. You know, I don't think it's that. But I do think that there's something to say about that concept. Okay. All right. Second thing is what's called uh, redemptive history. And I'll read a long quote about this. So stay with me. Uh, placed against the backdrop of the whole Bible, Luke's gospel shows us that the one for whom God's people had been waiting so long had finally come. In him, all the hopes and promises of the Old Testament were coming to decisive fulfillment. He was the true son of God, who, unlike Adam, God's first son, walked faithfully with God. He was the true Israel, who, unlike Israel before him, 
passed the test in the wilderness. After generations of sin, failure, and finally exile, one had come who would bear the punishment for his people and fulfill the ancient promises. The people would be restored to God. This was the one about whom the entire Old Testament spoke. All right, so we've obviously focused so much on the Old Testament, how it points to the New Testament, how it's one story. And I feel like a quote like that kind of really brings that home. And then lastly, uh, a sacrifice once and for all. So this is a once and for all sacrifice of Christ. So go with me just a little bit on a journey here. Um, but I think there's some really cool symbology. Tonight's lesson, if nothing else, has sort of been about finding stuff in the Old Testament and how it plays out in this gospel. And I love that kind of stuff. But Luke 23, 45, and the temple, uh, sorry, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You're probably aware of that image and that that's a part of the story. Like it goes dark, the, the temple curtain tears, kind of weird, right? Um, why did that happen? Okay, so in the temple, there was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, which was the earthly dwelling of God's presence from the rest of the temple where men dwelt. And of course, not just regular men, it had to be priests. So you had all this like separation between God and his most holy place. You even had to have like a holy place to even be able to even think about entering into the holiest of places. And outside of that, you had a temple and you had a wall outside. I mean, so you had God as separated as you could be to make this really stark image of God being separated. And why was he separated? Well, because he was holy and you couldn't be in his presence. Um, and this signifies that man is separated from God by our sin. That was the whole point, by our uncleanliness, okay, by things that we did that were wrong. You probably also know that the high priest was only permitted to pass beyond that veil or that curtain once each year. We see that in Exodus 30, Hebrews 9. And then he would enter into God's presence for all of Israel and make atonement for sins. Now, of interest, they would tie like a little rope around the priest's legs and they put bells on him so that if he like was cursed, they could pull him out, which is pretty crazy. Okay, So this is God's not playing around here. If you're going to be in the presence of God, you be, better be prepared for it. Okay, um, So it would make me a little nervous if I, if I was a high priest. Uh, so the curtain ripping, what it signifies is that now the way into the Holy of Holies was open for all people for all time, both Jew and Gentile. Okay, So a huge, like, you know, like a little sentence here. It's a, it's a huge, huge sentence. Okay? Uh, in Hebrews 10, it goes into some detail on this author Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So the image here is of Jesus' flesh being torn for us just as he was tearing this curtain or this veil for us. Okay? So this was, not, uh, this was also not a sacrifice that had to take place daily or once a year. It happened once for all. And in Hebrews 9.28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So here is your sort of summary statement. I think this is on your note sheet. The gospel, or the good news, is that our sin is, is no longer keeping us separated from God. Christ has torn the veil. He took away our sins with his perfect, perfect sacrifice once and for all. So that is Luke. Okay, so let's, let's take a little bit of time to discuss